Well, welcome. This is Freedom Sunday. Let me just give you a brief explanation. Uh, Lamar did a good job with that. But this is when the abolitionist movements around the globe unite on a single day. Anybody know what an abolitionist movement is? It's a movement that really looks at slavery and tries to set people free from, from whatever that, that enslaving institution or device is, whatever that secret is, whatever that product that we desire that requires that kind of labor that means they work for nothing, essentially in indentured servitude so we can have the newest iPhone. I didn't, I didn't actually just say that, but I did. That's modern slavery. You know, it's estimated that today there's over 30 million slaves that are working with the threat of violence in the situation or whatever, whether it be the sex trafficking, whether it be actually working, building our iPods, 30 million people, which makes that probably uh, the most amount in all of human history, as far as we can tell. Isn't that ironic? It's amazing how we learn, but we don't, isn't it? The church of which we are part, the, the affiliation of churches of which we are part, cut its teeth and gained its definition of who it is because it was forward, progressive, and abolitionist, and then 100 years later, balked on the issue of civil rights went silent in the 60s, came forward in the 80s and repented publicly. To this day, is still repenting. So we're all part of movements that both get it and don't or get it temporarily and then we misplace it. But I just want to say that the, the, the whole idea of setting the captive free is the only bottom line idea to the gospel. It really is all there is, right? It's not about better life. It's about setting people free. What moved the heart of God in ancient Israel when they were captive in Egypt was the plight of his people, and he moved through Moses to set his people free. He continues to do that to this very day in different ways. So that's a big part of what makes us who we are. This is why mission for us is, is center. This is why moving on behalf of the broken is the point for us. It's not an add-on. It's not something, it's not a trailer we park out back. It's not something we do next. It's the, it's, it's the reason that we are who we are and what we do. So in typical ANC fashion, we're not going to just ask the question of how do we set people free. We want to ask the prevention question, right? You can feed a hungry person now, but how do we solve the problem that creates this reality? Does that make sense? You You can find a good placement for a child in the CPS system once it's been abused or neglected. But how do we go back and solve the issue that created the problem that meant the child was neglected? Now, the reason people don't do that is is is. Well, there's probably several, but probably the biggest reason is it's very hard work, and it's extremely messy. It's very complicated, and it's not very sexy, if you will, to just to fund a teacher salary because we know that stable communities equals stable kids equals learning equals long-term potential equal, equals the ability to discern life's decisions because you're not hand-to-mouth. We know how these things connect, but it's, it's a harder solve, isn't it? We know how to, to wrap around families. The church understands this, how to wrap around families and meet the needs that create the homelessness, that creates the abuse, that creates the neglect, that creates the state issue that surfaces in CPS and in foster care and all the different things. And so in ANC's world, we think prevention. Mission isn't new for us. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's not just another thing we do. It's the reason we are who we are. Shoes to the homeless on 7th Street is the reason we exist. There's a lot of churches in Austin. I can hook you up with some really exciting ones if just church is what you're looking for. But we want to ask the question of prevention. So on Freedom Sunday, instead of just moving towards awareness of sex trafficking, let's ask a deeper question. How do we solve society's ills that produce the problem? You with me? Does it make sense? Any nods in the room? Okay. That's the backdrop. We've got a lot to cover today. I'm going to do it fast. I promised Brandon that I would tweet this if I could. So you guys be counting those 140 characters. Luke, keep me on track, okay? 
This is also, not surprisingly, interestingly enough, the first Sunday of Lent. Does anybody know what Lent is, capital L? Not what you find in your dryer. Lent, it's a season. It's a great season of preparation of the church. There's two great seasons of preparation, right? One builds to Christmas, the birth of the Savior. The other builds to Easter, the resurrection of the Savior, right? This is the season of 40 days plus six Sabbaths plus Holy Week that gets us to the empty tomb, right? And so during this season of preparation, it's a season of fasting. It's a season of of intentionally weighing into longing so that the, 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 our need for a Savior and maybe above all, our need for a risen Savior rises to the top of our spiritual life. So I would encourage you, if you don't know what Lent is, do some research, do some devotionals. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a big deal. Wednesday of this week, if you noticed around town, people with black ashes on their forehead. Do, do we know what those are, guys? You know what those are? Some, somebody tell me what those are. We went through this last year, didn't we? Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert, I already told you this. I'm a bit of a liturgist. I'm sorry. In seminary, my, my liturgy prof was probably the most important prof I had. What we put on our foreheads for Ashes on Ash Wednesday are the, what remains of last year's palm fronds with, with which we wave Hosanna. And in a very profound and liturgical way, our voice that says, you are the one we hoped for, within three days says, I don't know, I'm backing away because you just died on a tree. But within the calendar year, we'll come back and we will say, we remember our Hosanna. And we remember that to prepare ourselves for your in-breaking reality, we've got work to do. And that work doesn't just happen the weekend of Easter, right, as you rush around for a nice pastel tie. That work happens in real time, right? So, so a lot going on today. Two weeks ago, Trey talked about judgment. You remember that? I'm not going to say whether it was good or bad because that would be too judgmental. <laughs> I presenced it. It was a great sermon. Um, last week, Brandon talked about prayer. We prayed for some real needs last week. Did that, did that impact your life in a bit, in some profound ways? We need to know who among us is suffering physically. It's absolutely essential. If our faith doesn't make sense in that space, then our faith doesn't make sense. Because it's a matter of time until we get into that place where it's got to make sense. And everything kind of crystallizes and becomes clear. So remain uh, firm with those who we prayed for and who we are, we are praying for, for healing. Um, because God can do that. He can, and I believe he wants to. Last week, Brandon ended with verse 12 of chapter 7. We've been in Matthew 7 for a while. We're going to wrap up chapter 7 today. Verse 12, and this is where Jesus himself summarizes the law and the prophets. I love how Jesus likes to summarize it into one idea because it just makes, makes it easy for simple people like me who just can't hold the complexity all in, in tension. Verse 12 of Matthew chapter 7 says, So in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Sums it up. Thank you, Jesus, for the summary, because tearing into the law and the prophets is a bit of a deal. It's a bit of, a, it's a bit of an ordeal. There's a lot of interpretation. There's a lot of laws written around laws that create laws and create other things. And Jesus sums it up by saying this, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How many parents quote this like daily? Yeah, this comes up a lot at our house. Christy laughed. With that sermon summary in his back pocket, Jesus covers about four more things. One is a strong visual, and three are three juxtaposed situations in which he's given us the ability to discern between the right and the wrong. A few final images, and let me just suggest to you what they are. And in your bulletin, there's little things to fill in if you like to fill in things. But before we get to that first one, in the next few sections, Jesus is going to illustrate the foolishness of the following things. Number one, following a crowd and traveling too heavy. He's going to illustrate the foolishness of saying the right things but failing to do them, right? Nobody guilty of that in this room, I'm, I'm sure. 
He's going to illustrate the foolishness of sounding super spiritual, but somehow not doing the will of the Father. Saying all that crazy, awesome, glossy stuff, but not getting down to the business. And he's going to illustrate the foolishness of hearing the word and not doing anything about it. Okay, so he's got, he gave us his summary. He's moving towards a change in gears here. We're going to move from the Jesus who's teaching, sitting down essentially, teaching, and he's going to move to the Jesus who is in action now. What we're going to get in in chapters 8, and I think Jen's going to be with us next week to to deal with the beginnings of Matthew 8, we're going to start tracking with the Jesus in action, right? But for this last moment, let's just guard time with him and hold these last few ideas. The essence of what he seems to be saying, and this is your first fill in the blank, catch this, our doctrines can't be right if our ethics are wrong. Our doctrines can't be right. They're not right if our ethics are wrong. Do you know what I mean by that? What we say, what we believe is not right if it does not result in changed action. There's just no deal there. You get it? Now, that's difficult for us to understand because for us, we've basically encapsulated the whole spiritual thing in, in basically an idea that we, we sit around, we think about it, and oftentimes we, we don't do anything about it. We live in a time of plenty. We have luxury. We have free time. We've got all the space, Right? But Jesus is basically saying in these four next little pericopes, he's saying our doctrines can't be right if our ethics are wrong. Okay, let's get into it. Verse 13, read with me. It's the narrow and the wide gates. It should be on the screens. Aren't these screens great? Fantastic. I've heard nothing but good stuff. I'm so sorry that this cable is killing me. All right. The narrow and the wide gates, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Let's do a little poll. What's the first image, the first physical image that comes to your mind with those two verses? What do you see? Anybody? We dialogue here at ANC, so if you're from out of town and this makes you nervous, just retie your shoelaces. (laughs) Multi-lane freeway. So you see the path. Good. Multi-lane freeway, a little bit like 35 maybe. Yeah. What do you see? Teenagers? Anything? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So like a wide path with lots of people versus a small path with a few people. Yeah? Bridges. Okay. What's the first image that comes to mind? Is it, is it the, the road or is it the gate? Haha, who saw the gate? Okay, talk to me about the gate. What do you see? Okay. I'll get in technical. Somebody who's been reading the back of their Bible after Revelation stops and all those cool maps. <laughs> yeah. Somebody over here had their hand up. See the gate? Okay. Anybody else? Uh, interesting. I think, go ahead. Okay. So like a full-on Saturday Night Live joke, like the, you know, the whole, the priest and the, and then, no, never mind. Interestingly enough, because I think my eye generally goes to the width of the path and the amount of people, and as I was pondering this this week, I think I focused more on the gate. There's not a right or wrong way to look at this. Jesus is, is, is getting at a point, but I think, I think what I want to focus on just, just for a second with us is the narrow gate, right? One thing we know to be true about our Father is that He wills that none should be lost. He wills that all should turn, Right? We know that every knee one day will bow and recognize his lordship. So 
So I'm a little disturbed at my own immediate axiomatic response to say, oh yeah, there's just very few of us who get this thing. The rest of y'all are going the wrong way. And something is very disturbing about that. You want to you mess with Christians and see, their, see, them, see them get angry? Start changing the list of people that are going to hell in their mind. And they start getting, the, they'll light the blogs up. What do you mean he said they're not going to hell? Then we start bringing up all this froth and all this crazy stuff because we're super invested in the fact that we feel like we're just a few. I want to focus on the gate for a second. We know in verse 12, in Jesus' summary of this whole teaching where he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, we know that's not easy to do. We know there's not very many people around us who get that right, including ourselves. And I don't think ultimately this is a commentary of the limitation of salvation so much as it is the fact that you've got some unloading to do if you're going to enter through the gate of Jesus. Does that make sense? Let's just set aside for a second who's on and who's off and who's in and who's out because we generally never get that right anyway. And let's focus on the fact that if you're going to enter through a narrow gate and you're heavy laden, you're heavy loaded, you're loaded down, you've got some real unloading to do. How many of you guys have lived this in your life? How many of you guys signed up with this Jesus thing and thought this is going to be amazing? It's going to be camp and teen mania and we're going to scream and yell and do, yeah, it's going to be. And then you realize he's asking you to unload yet another thing, like for real. Like I just gave that up, right? You know the deal. It's said that there was a gate in Jerusalem. Interesting that, that you thought about the gate in Jerusalem, that after the gates were closed at night, I don't know, you guys could correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong about this, but I've heard this my whole life. And you never know when you're a preacher's kid if what you hear is truth, just because you hear it from the pulpit. I'm just saying. But there was a gate that if you showed up late, and, I'm sorry, if you show up late and the gate's closed, you can't go in the main way. But if you had to get in the city to, to, to get into the protection of the city of Jerusalem, there was a very, very small gate which required your animal to unload everything on its back and to barely get through. We called it, or they called it, the eye of the needle in some, in some cases. Because if you were walking from a long way away and you wanted the protection of a walled city, you could have it, but you had to unload everything. And what a beautiful image of what it's like to follow Jesus. Everything. It's going gonna, it's gonna to require every bit of control you have and want to hold to be laid down. Every investment you think you earn because it's the fruit of your hand is going to have to lay that down. Every relationship you idolize and you desire over and above every other thing, we have to lay that down. This is the game. This is his big sermon, and this is where he's wrapping this. Fill in the blank there. It says, we've got significant unloading to do if we're going to pass through the narrow gate. So just for a second, focusing on Jesus, we've got to unload some stuff. And he's going to continue to ask us to unload more stuff as we go. That's just who he is. You know, light is not an easy way to travel. Is it? We once moved, Allison and I moved internationally in the back seat of a little Nissan Sentra. It's a little four-door. Everything we had fit in the back of that car and in the trunk. And we wore out two sets of tires from here in central, between here and central Mexico because it was so loaded, the thing was just doing this on the road. We had to travel light. We got there and we rented an apartment and it looked like a joke. It looked like a college dorm because we'd have to, we just didn't have anything. But light's not an easy way to travel, is it? Traveling light is the only way to go with Jesus, isn't it? One of the things that traveling light implies is that your needs are going to have to be met along the way, you know? If you walk the Appalachian Trail from point to point, you can't take on your back everything it takes to get you from Georgia to Maine. There have to be points along the way where you pick up supplies, which means you're interdepending along the way on people on the journey. And boy, what an image of the Christian life. We can't do it alone. And the big frustration that I have with God sometimes is that the way he chooses to meet the need is through people around me. I'm just, man, just send me a box from heaven. Like, seriously, you gotta, oh, Lord, make me patient, make me like Christ. Oh, no problem. 
He's going to make me patient by putting somebody in my life who's just going to bring that up. You know how that goes. All right, we're off that subject now. Interestingly enough, there's a great many people who know the gospel and who love Jesus but refuse to travel light, and they can't make it through that gate. There's a bunch. I know some. You probably know some too. Verse 15, another idea. He's just shooting turkey shot at us right right now because he's about to change gears. True and false prophets. This gets interesting. Verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So they dress as sheep, but inside they're wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? I love how he makes it so earthy. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Talking about false prophets. They look like the right thing, but they're not. False prophets were the ones, here's the next little blank for you. False prophets were the ones who got the message, but they didn't get the point. They got the message, but they didn't get the point. They heard the words, but they didn't connect the dots, right? It's about learning not to be fooled by what's on the outside. And boy, if anything describes me, it's that. I can read you from the outside. I got you figured out. I think I know what's on the inside. Jesus says that's not only fruitless, but that's, that's wolfish. Can be. Easily deceived. We know in Scripture that we're not terribly good at reading fruit, are we? Interestingly, Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. And in other parts of the New Testament, he's going to say, you know what? Don't try to separate wheat from tares because you guys don't have any idea of the difference. He just got through talking about don't judge, right? Interesting stuff. What we do know is this. We're not great fruit inspectors. And we also know that according to this definition of Jesus, it's very easy to slip into the role of a false prophet, isn't it? I slip into it. So we're not talking about people who are permanently this role. We're talking about a space that we slide into. Because how many times have I heard the message and missed the point? Happens all the time. I wish there was an easy way to teach this. But it's kind of exposing, isn't it? Jesus' teachings expose the hearts of men and women. And that's what they were about. Let's move on to verse 21. True and false disciples. It's going to get a little worse and then it'll get better. That's what the dentist tells you, right? You're going to feel a little pressure. Who defined pressure anyway? You guys ever want to say, wait a second. Give me a, on a scale of 1 to 10, Doc. What are we talking about pressure here? All right, true and false disciples. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, this is just, this is just odd. He goes from talking about traveling light to talking about wolves to talking about fake followers, Right? He's going he's gonna to cook our goose here before it's done. No matter what you say with your mouth, here's your next little fill-in. The only measure by which our lives will be evaluated is whether or not we do the will of the Father. Not how many spiritual things we accomplish. It's the will of the Father. Not how many spiritual things we accomplish. So what is the will of the Father? Talk to me. What is the will of the Father? It's what? To glorify the Son? To be glorified? Mm -hmm. 
applesauce up here in the front row. Did you say love God and love others? Good. That's the will of the Father, to love God and love others. Somebody said back here? To, who said that? Go ahead. To love his people. Yeah. No way to love him without loving his people, is it? And who are his people? All people. It gets a little controversial. There's whole centuries of war that go on about, way. no, no, we're in, no, you're out, no, we're out, no, you're in. All people are God's people. So to love people is to do the will of the Father. That's good. That's good. What's the will of the Father? Someone else. Humility. To walk in a self-serving, self-emptying way, right? Basically, the will of the Father is to do what Jesus did, which was what? Come and love it, serve it, die for it. Fix it. It's weird. Jesus seems to be implying that there are disciples who can pull off great miraculous things. Did you catch that? And still not be his children. Did you see that? They prophesy, they heal, they do great miracles, and yet Jesus says, I don't even know you. They say, but wait, 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 we did these things. This, we did this stuff. And Jesus says, I, I don't know. I don't anything about you. Just because you say, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean a thing. Isn't that odd? Do you ever wonder about that? He could have packaged that a little more nicely and left a few questions answered. But he plainly says, false disciples are those who go around doing this stuff, but I don't know them. All right, let's wrap with this last little bit here. And we're actually moving in a direction. The wise and the f- foolish builders, I think everyone who's ever read the scriptures know this story. Verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words, now remember, Jesus is moving from teaching to action, right? Here's the whole arc that he's moving us on. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, which words? Everything we've just heard for the last three chapters, okay? Anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus gives us one final mental picture here of the person who hears but does not follow through, who listens, maybe even gets it, but does not unload at that narrow gate. It's like the man who built his house on the rock or on on the sand and it all came down. Every piece of investment was lost. Every hopeful end came to a calamitous end. With Jesus, your final little fill in the blank there, with Jesus, everything is about putting into practice the words and the ideas that we hear him say. See, this family, the church family, your ANC family, the believing community, is not a family of right action. It's, it's not just a family of right belief, I should say. It's a family of action and evolving belief, right? I said that intentionally. It's a family of action. What makes us a community, the greatest proof that, that Jesus touched the earth, far greater than if we can find a rock that says his name on it or we can find someone who said they saw him do it is the fact that all these years later there's a community of people doing a very unnatural thing and that is that we still move in the direction of the action of Jesus and as we do our beliefs evolve over time did you know that the gatekeeper for us is not do you believe the way we do you belong to God we know that to be true in Jesus Christ and we're on our way and even the things that I hold dear today are subject to change the list of essentials grows shorter and shorter with time and the, and, and the list of action and the ways we put this into movement increases over time because 
this is a community of action, not just a community of belief. This is a, mo- this is a movement of, of, of correct ethics that say we're going to be about the business of fixing broken things while our belief follows us, while we continue to make sense of how it is that Christ is in the world. You know, he's in the world in the speaking of the word, but he's also in the world in the breaking of bread. It may not be our tradition that understands that mystery in the table, that, that incredible transfer of whatever goes on, and Jesus says, meet me here at this place, wash your feet and break this bread. It doesn't have to be our tradition for us to understand that God is in the world that way. And as my belief evolves and follows the work of God, I must be about the business of action. Follow through. Doing something with it. You want to corrupt your life, fill your head with the gospel and do nothing about it and you're wrecked because you're going to be a legalist and you're going to be locked down and angry. But fill your life with the gospel that sees a way to figure out a way to move in the direction of people and it will mess you up in the right way and it'll make you about the work of God in the world. It'll change everything you touch. And all of a sudden, the things you touch, you won't hold so tightly because you'll understand that they're just on loan so that you can do the work of God in the world. All right, I'm about to sweat. Uncool. It's February. Final little verse here. And this is so amazing. So amazing. Matthew writes, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. What an amazing exchange of ideas. And Matthew says, the people were amazed because he was different. How do you think he was different? What do, why do you think people were so impressed? And don't just go with the easy answer, well, because he was God. That's too easy. Why do you think he was, people were so impressed? Yes. Well, that's like Rick Bayless showing you how to make salsa. If you don't know who that is, watch some more PBS. You need more PBS in your life, less HBO. I'm just saying. I got a little wave back there. Rick Bayless is my hero. Watching him, he wrote the book, and he knows this stuff. You're absolutely right, the authorship. There was something about them. Now, I, I doubt that they understood in the moment fully what we understand now, and that, and that is that he was the incarnation of God himself. For all we know, even his disciples around him still struggled with this reality, but they knew something was different. When this man taught, everything just went, everything just connected, Right? Somebody else. Why were they so impressed? That was that was good. Yeah. Ah. Interesting. Did you guys catch that? Did everybody hear that? Yeah, that's really good. He wasn't arguing what the point was. He was bringing summary to a huge body of teaching. Now, interestingly enough, we've, we've, we've clarified this early on. He's not contradicting this body of teaching. He's bringing summary to a great body of work, and he's bringing it to a point of action. And I wonder if what was so different and so authoritative about the way he taught might have had something to do with the fact that he moved to action to fix things that were immediate, right? It was accessible. People understood that by by, by saying what he was saying, we could, we could do something about this. So there was a move from theory to practice, from doctrine to action, from belief to ethics, right? Anybody else want to weigh in on that? Yeah, he sure didn't do that very well, did he? He didn't gain, 
about as soon as he created a crowd, he figured a way to send them home, didn't he? Yeah, he wasn't peddling and trying to build a movement, right? He could have. He could have. The teachers of the law wanted, they, they couldn't land and pounce on him because they knew that the crowds would swell because he had, a, he had a bit of a thing behind him. But he wasn't playing that, was he? Yeah. Yeah. So something about his constant, relentless turn to the heart. He says things like, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. The whole Sermon on the Mount, we've just covered the whole thing. We're wrapping it today. The whole body of work, he keeps moving to the heart, right? There's no way to walk away from that little crowd. You'd be like one in the crowd when they drag the woman caught in adultery in. And all of a sudden he says, oh, anyway, uh, by the way, if you guys don't have anything in your heart, go ahead. Do this thing. It's that, it's that cardinal move to the heart that calls your heart out and you just know, uh-oh, I've been exposed. Maybe that was part of it, yeah. What we do know is that they were deeply, deeply impressed, and they knew this is different. This is not the same, right? This is uh, something clearly different. He had moral authority for, for, for interesting reasons. There's probably a thousand reasons. Let me ask us this. Are we amazed? We've just sat with the master. We've heard him over a period of weeks. Are we amazed? Are we exposed? To the degree that I'm not amazed and I'm not exposed, I'm deeply concerned. I try really hard to stay in that place where I let these words read me, like you said. Are we impressed? Are we, are we amazed? Do we see that Jesus is cutting through the noise and getting to the bottom of it? I sure hope so. Because this is the cardinal arc of Scripture right here. This is the move of Scripture. From head to heart to hands. The move of everything that's true and everything that's right and everything that's godly in the earth and everything Jesus has ever done and will do moves us to move on behalf of those who are around us. There's no other spirituality. There's nothing else that's legit. If it gets stuck here and it doesn't move us, then we've got an issue. This is the arc. This is the movement. I want to tell you a story, and we're going to wrap with this on Freedom Sunday when we've just looked at a very tangible way to invest in salaries of teachers to help prevent the kinds of brokenness that we know exist around the world. There was a time, and ironically enough, I was a senior in seminary. And if you don't know what that is, I envy you. It's, it's, uh, it's a very long and tedious degree in scripture and uh, figuring out how to, I don't know, do the work of Jesus. And I found it an interesting space because you make this an academic approach and everything is all lining up in your head. And I remember the day my wife came to me. Now, we had been missionaries during the my whole life and during our first four years as a couple. Um, And that's all she ever wanted to do. The biggest disillusion and deception or setback in her life was the day I said, let's move back to the States because God is doing this other thing and I want to go see what that's about. All she ever wanted to be was a missionary wife. That's all she ever wanted to be. So my wife exists on the margin and her heart beats, but the further I move her from the margin, the poor, the broken, the marginalized, sort of the edges of society, the more difficult it is for her to survive. Well, at this point... We'd been in the States for 13 years or so, 12 years. I had been in school for 10 of those 12 years, coming to the end of a degree in theology. And her constant, I'm just going to be honest, her constant thing towards me was, everything is about you pursuing your passion. When do I get to do mine? I'm just dying here. I got, we got four kids that God gave us, and that's great. But like, I, I long to be in that space, and everything that would keep coming up was missions and missions and missions. And I'm thinking... You know, there was potential for us to just start to drift apart. And she comes to me one day and she says, 
I know what I want to do. Now, I was ready as long as it was easy, right? You know the deal. I know what I want to do. And I saw this little flame behind her eyes, you know, this little. She says, I want to open our home and I want to start fostering kids from really hard places. And I can't even breathe as I'm watching her. I'm thinking, you want to do what? I've got like one night off a week. Literally, I hate to, don't, please don't understand this or hear this as bragging, but I had every hour of my week accounted for. I was working 60-hour weeks in heavy industry. I was going to school full-time, seminary full-time. We were raising four kids. I was preaching once a month or so at church and leading worship, not quite that frequently, but often. We were busy people. She said, I want to open up my house. I want to do this thing. And I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking, the Holy Spirit grabbed me before the words came out, and he says, don't you dare put out that flame. You snuff that flame out, it might be the last time you see it. And I just knew that that was holy ground. And so I reluctantly over a period of weeks agreed that, okay, let's do this. Because it, honestly, for me, it was, let's do this so that you can be happy. And I have no idea how this is going to work. Because when you open your home to foster kids and kids from hard places, you just don't know what's coming in the front door. You just don't. Over a period of several years in Chicago, she got deeper and deeper and deeper involved in an organization that did this. What it is, is it's a prevention to foster care. So instead of just taking kids and figuring out what to do with them once the abuse and the neglect has happened, say families tries to go around and say, no, how do we wrap around families before that happens? How do we wrap around this mom right before it all falls apart, right? It could be an alternator that means she missed her job, which means she's now evicted from an apartment, which means now she's living on the streets with a newborn baby. That kind of thing. How do you do the messy work of prevention, right? For me, how ironic is it to be surrounded in the greatest theology of our day, writing papers and listening to professors, getting it all in my head and thinking, I can't do this on behalf of these broken kids because I'm too busy. You know the deal. I'm too busy doing the work of the kingdom here. I'm trying to prepare to be a pastor. Yay for me, right? And these little kids who are addicted to heroin because of their mom's horrible choices and the city hospital literally cannot discharge this baby to its mom, and it can't gain weight because it shakes violently because it's so addicted to heroin because of mom's choices. I can't open my house to that. And you see that great chasm, that contradiction of the gospel in my own life, right? Thank God for a godly woman, guys, who can look at that and say, wait, none of, it's all rubbish if we can't do this. None of it makes any sense if we can't do this. And so over the period of several years, we opened our home. I think it was 12 kids we had come through. I don't remember. The most remarkable one to me uh, was probably the, the little heroin guy, the heroin baby. Um, I got a call at work, she says, one day. She says, we've got a call. They've called five families, and nobody has said yes. His mom is HIV positive, and they're not sure he is. Instantly, I go back to public school in the 80s. You remember? When you, if, if you even breathe in the same space as somebody with HIV, you know whole, the whole deal from 1980 on. Had us all shocked into thinking it was this horrible thing. I instantly go back to that space, and I'm like, uh, mm, I got, I'm feeling spiritual. I have to protect my four children. Well, little guy was so small, but could projectile vomit like the biggest guy in the room. Because does anybody know what methadone is? Let's just be hardcore here for a second. If you're addicted, heavy addicted to heroin, the only way to get your body off is to, is to give it methadone in a decreasing titration so that your body slowly gets up to speed to fight that addiction. And it is ugly, and it is violent, and it is wicked. And when it's happening to a seven-pound baby who can't gain weight, it's just everything that's real in the universe. And you hold this child and you think nothing else makes as much sense as this. It was a move from theory to action. It was a move from ideas to doing something about it. I remember the time in the middle of the night 
when I had to get up and work and go to school. I mean, my days were long. Allison had done the shift. You, all you could do with this little guy was hold him and wrap him tight and pace with him and just pray that his body would, 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 would eventually overcome this, this addiction. One night in the middle of the night, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I had to get up at 6 to go to work. I get up. I hear him cry. I go in there, and one of my children meets me in the hallway and says, Dad, I got this. I got this. You go to bed. I don't have to go to work in the morning. You do. Unbelievable move to action. Unbelievable move where you leverage your entire family. It's, not, it's no longer a ministry that Dad does because one of my fears for my kids, and I don't know if you share this, is that they're going to understand that on two poles of my life are the church and the family. And to the degree that the church demands Dad, it pulls them away from the family. Well, this just scrubbed that whole thing clean and says, home is ministry central. This is the epicenter of everything that's real, and it happens in the middle of the night, and it happens by mopping barf up off the floor from a kid who just can't stop because his mom's bad choices. If we don't survive those moves, the gospel makes no sense. I'm just going to say it that way. None of this makes any sense or makes any difference in the world until we can survive the turbulent waters of that gear shift, until it can make a difference in the life of somebody who's broken. We've got countless stories like that. And we have an opportunity as Austin New Church to get engaged in that too. So as we talk about prevention on, on, on Freedom Sunday, there's a very tangible way to wrap around a need in Haiti. And in a second, Allison's going to give us a way we can wrap our heads around this issue of safe families. It's coming to Austin. It's brand new to Texas. It only exists in Houston at this point. And our opportunity at Austin New Church is to be the first families to say, we'll open our homes to this. Why? Because this is what the gospel does. We've got churches all over the city who are ready to play ball. We've got CPS in the back pocket who's ready to start moving kids, but we don't have families yet. We need families. So I'm going to let Allison come and tell us how we can consider moving to that point of action, and then we'll wrap with prayer. We'll do communion, and we'll, we'll get you out of here. Okay, come on. Can you make it up on this tall stage? Woo! Wow, I had no idea where he was going. So we're tag-teaming this, totally ad-libbing it. Um, I am so excited to be on the front lines here bringing Safe Families for Children to Austin. Um, we launched it in Houston. It's up and going. I continue to um, manage that program there. But we, our leadership team has been raised up in the last year since I've been here of women across the city who see the need to work on the prevention side. Austin, there's four ladies here in Austin New Church that are part of that team. And I couldn't be more thrilled. Y'all, this is where it gets real. Prevention side, you say, why prevention? When a kid enters the foster care system, that parent is given 12 months to get their act together. 12 months. If at the end of 12 months they don't have it together, they can ask for an extension, and they might be granted six more months. So we're talking maybe 18 months to get their crap together. I'm sorry, but when was I given 18 months? I've been given my whole life to get my crap together. It's a journey. So this is an organization and a way for, to, to get the church involved in that step to walk alongside those families before they enter the state system so that we can be in that journey with them and be their safety net so they can call us when they have nobody else safe to turn to. That story of the little guy was one of many, but our first story was I didn't understand this deal about having nobody. But that mom opened up to me and said, I have nobody because my mom set me on fire when I was three for crying too much. And my world changed for forever because I realized that these people literally have nobody. So we believe the answer is the church. We can be there somebody if we're willing to open our hearts and our homes. So I have a table out there. See me. 
You don't have to open your home. You could be a driver for a kid to go on a visit with their parent. You could be a mentor to a mom who just, you just take her out to lunch once a week, twice a month, and listen to her. They just need somebody to listen to them, and we can be those people. So thanks.